In this episode of The Honest Pour, I sit down and talk with the maker of some of California's most exciting wines. Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. When people like Steve Morgan and Ryan Arnold of Squire Wines, a wine marketing firm in Chicago, get excited about a winemaker, I've learned to listen. Two years ago, that's how I discovered the wines of Michael Cruz, of Cruz Wine Company and his sparkling wine project, Ultramarine. Last year, I visited Cruz at his winery in Petaluma, where he's making some of the most interesting and arguably unique wines in Northern California. Just look at his lineup, Tanat, Valdeguie, Petnats, an oxidized Jura-like Chardonnay, and the terroir-driven grower champagne-like sparkling wines of Ultramarine, and you'll see that this isn't the typical Sonoma winery. But Cruz isn't about oddball wines. Rather, he's about making delicious wines that you can drink now, which are unapologetic about their fruit and where they're from. When I heard Cruz was going to be in Chicago for less than 24 hours, I was fortunate enough to snag a bit of his time to sit down with him at Oyster Bar, 1962 North Halstead in Chicago, to talk about and taste some of his delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. When you think of a Sonoma winery, you picture bucolic views of rolling vineyards. Well, Cruz Wine Company, located in an industrial park along a freeway in Petaluma, shatters that mold. Just like Michael Cruz is shattering the notions of what California sparkling wine, pet nets, and other off-the-beaten-path varietals can be. Joining me today is Michael Cruz of Cruz Wine Company and Ultramarine. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. You know, I've been interviewing a lot of people, uh, how they got into wine, and it seems to be one of two places. You're either born into it, or you came into to it through through science. Yeah. You sort of came in through, through, through science, yeah? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I'd say that the primary reason I got into it at all would be being born in California, truthfully, in the Bay Area, but um, sort of how I decided to do that as a living was definitely science-based. Um, I mean, I, I think sometimes it gets overstated. I'm not convinced that science is actually that important in winemaking, but I think that when you learn a, my interest in biochemistry, and I think that is a craft-based type of thing, surprising to most people, but um, in anything like that, you sort of get interested in other things that are craft-based, like winemaking. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about ultramarine, because okay. I dig ultramarine. Good. Um, Good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I've been on the list from the get-go, and I'm real happy about Great. it. Um, Very glad to hear Why bubbles? Why, why, why'd you get into bubbles? So, um, ultramarine was started by me and two other guys. Um, back in 2008. And our interest at the time was, I think probably it was Le Mondier, although honestly I couldn't tell you exactly who. But um, sort of the grower champagne movement became a little bit more popular then. And we were interested in it. And truthfully, we sort of saw the rise of kind of single vineyard California Pinot Noir and wanted to do something different and thought that there was a maybe a market is going too far because I don't think we thought that far ahead but 
we saw a space for us to exist in there. And then, in addition to that, personally, I just like the technique of it. It's the most technique-based winemaking style. Maybe sherry beats us, but it's something like that. And I, I, um, I was interested in sort of doing that here. When you think about sparkling wine, particularly California sparkling uh-huh. wine, sort of big house style, you know? Uh, Not many people were doing this kind of grower style. Were there any challenges that that presented to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, that's an interesting way to put it. I think historically, probably, and, and this is, you know, one of those things that it's just history drives it more than, I think, purpose. But I think we may have been the first that were doing, well, that's not true. There were sm- other people that were doing small scale sparkling, but I think that they, we were the first that were intentionally doing small scale sparkling to emulate um, growers. Um, yeah, I mean, a tremendous amount of challenges. I mean, you don't have the equipment, you don't have the space, and... At the time, I mean, if you think about it, if you're uh, if you're Jerome Prevost or someone like that, you can go down the block and get whatever you need. You're in a village that all they do is sparkling. Um, here, by going down the block to get equipment, it means email France or go on a website and see what used equipment they have, and then you know hire a shipping company to put it in a container and get it over here. So yeah, there's been a lot of challenges. So you face some of those going. challenges yeah, with equipment, and did I hear something about like a certain kind of bottle you wanted? There was like a certain thickness of glass you were looking yeah, for that you couldn't exactly. get. No, it's true. So um, that was the other thing when we started out. Um, this is a little inside baseball, but in America, all bottles are 27 millimeters of the cap because it matches um, beer. In Europe, it's 29. Most glass is made in France for the American market, and that American market is all at 27. So they make one style of bottle that comes here that's 27 millimeter. So we decided we didn't want to do that, and since we were doing by hand and had no equipment anyway, that we were going to import in glass that we wanted to use at 29 millimeter. And then <laughs> this sort of corollary down the line from that is then we had to do everything by hand because there was no 29 millimeter equipment here anyway. So um, unintended consequences. But, uh, but yeah, I think not knowing anything helped us to make the product that it was. Do you find that being so um, hand, literally hands-on, yeah. uh, does it affect the wine? Does it affect the wine? I think it affects one's relationship with the wine. And by that I mean that if you are letting a machine do the work for you, you can program the machine to do, um, let's talk about riddling, I think, is the easiest way to do it. And riddling is the turning of yeah, the exactly. bottles as they exactly, age. Exactly, so that the the yeast deposit falls to the neck of the bottle. The machines do that as well or better than human beings. There's no question of that. But I would argue that in in for a product that for ultramarine for example we don't filter uh, we don't cold stabilize we don't do all the sort of stabilization things that sort of help um, automation uh, automizer whatever <laughs> automation automation there we are we'll and find the word we'll find words the word. are hard automation and this allows us a little bit more flexibility. So if we see tartrate crystals form, we can see it and we can deal with it as where if it was in a machine, we couldn't do that type of stuff. Um, so I don't know that I would go so far as to say that it makes the wine better. I wouldn't say that. What I would say is that it, 
reinforces or maybe induces a connection with the wine that you wouldn't have otherwise. Tell me about where the fruit's coming from for Ultramarine. So Ultramarine's 100% from Charlie Heinz's vineyard um, in Occidental. So it's about, you know, it's a crow flies maybe five miles from the ocean. It's on a warm ridge there, and the Chardonnay was planted in the in the early 80s. And why there? Um, well, it's, I mean, the vines are old, uh, relatively old for Chardonnay in California. They yield well, so there's a little bit more, um, a little bit more fruit, which I think is uh, helpful and sparkling. And they have an extremely slow ripening curve, so um, bud break would be in, let's say, March, maybe a week or two later than Carneros. Um, but I use Carneros as a reference here. And then, but you'd be picking um, for sparkling wine maybe two weeks after you pick for still in Carnero. So you're getting another maybe two to four weeks on the vine um, in Occidental. You make you make two bottlings of the Ultramarine, and there's Blanc Blanc, and there's a Rosé. Yep. Uh, the Rosé is going to be changing, right? Yeah, so the 2012 is the last, or 2011 is the last year of the Rosé. Um, in 12 and 13, it became Blanc de Noir. And then we started the rosé up again in 2014, but then it's an assemblage rosé. I don't know if you want to go into the details. Yeah, but but what is an assemblage rosé? So an assemblage rosé is a rosé made by adding red wine to essentially a white base to color it. Uh, the 10 and the 11 of Ultramarine was a sunnier rosé, meaning that the grapes were macerated in their juice to add color. Great. And why, why the change? Um... Lots of reasons. <laughs> it's very hard to do a Sonier Rosé. And while I think we're ultimately extremely happy with the results, I think that the Blanc de Noir is better. Fair enough. Yeah, that's a simple... Yeah, no, that's it's what you do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, any thoughts about maybe other... Um, looking at other vineyards, other sites I mean, I, for, I, for I Ultramarine? We have been from the very beginning, um, and I think we probably will add on at least one vineyard this year. Oh, cool. Um, and then um, I hope to add on another one next. So, so we might be looking at the 2022 release having four different bottlings or five different bottlings. Um, and then we do have, you know, we have some late disgorge stuff that we're going to be coming along with that... that probably next year. Oh, wow. Uh, and we have some stuff in Magnums, too. Um, we did some 2012s in Magnums that we'll release next year as well. Fun. Yeah. That's really cool. Tough wine to get, but if if, if you can get out there and uh, taste some ultramarine, you should definitely wrap your hands on some of that. Well, I, I appreciate the compliments. I'm, I'm, we're proud of that wine. For yeah. Sure. You started ultramarine before Cruise Wine Company, right? That's right, yeah. But that wine got to market probably after Cruise Wine started coming to market. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I think they probably came out very close timeline-wise. But yeah, it was very. It was similar. It wasn't. It couldn't have been, but six months difference. Yeah. Um, Tell me about Cruise Wine. Why did you start up Cruise Wine Company and? What's the sort of overall philosophy there? Because you yeah. know you're not making Pinot Noir. Uh, no. Yeah, you're doing a Chardonnay, but no. you, you're, you're not doing the typical grape varieties that you see coming out of yeah. out of the area. Why did you take that road? Well, so I think the thing with uh, the thing with Cruz from the beginning was that I wanted to kind of go back to a style of winemaking that was historically Californian. And by that, I mean sort of prior to Judgment of Paris, since the anniversary was kind of around. Today. Today, yeah, there you go. I wanted to make wine for drinking, which sounds crazy to even say it in those terms. But, you know, 
less of a status product and more of something uh, that people consumed. Tied with that, I also wanted to work with sort of undervalued vineyards that I knew about and have been friendly with the growers for most of my career. Um, the Valdegay, I've known the Wilson family for at least 10 years now. Dale Ritchie, same story. So I wanted to sort of explore those a little bit. And finally, as the sort of three-point uh, thing here, have a little bit of experimentation. Um, Ultramarine, I love it, but it is a little bit more rigid in sort of style. Um, so having a little bit of flex in that was another another angle. So it allows you to have a little more fun as a winemaker? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, fun is maybe not the, exactly the word I would use. But creative expression? More, creative expression is exactly it. Yeah, absolutely. And Petnat, tell me about Petnats and how you got into that. I mean, obviously, huge trend right now. We yeah. don't see, we actually don't see Petnats as much in Chicago yeah. as you might, like, you know, uh, New York, San Francisco. Sure, sure. Well, so I think um, it's a style that's been around for a while. I think, you know, um, people occasionally will call it ancestral method, and sometimes people will say that that's been around for hundreds of years. That's definitely not the case um, because it requires good glass. So it's it's still it's only been around as good glass has been around. Exactly. So maybe we're talking eighty years maximum. But with method champenoise or traditional method, you have a dry base wine. So you have a dry base wine that's been fermented completely that you add sugar and yeast back to. With Petnat, you have actively fermenting must, so grape juice that's actively fermenting that then goes to bottle and finishes its fermentation in bottle. And then the CO2 comes from the grape sugars as opposed to the added sugar in the case of traditional method. Um, for us, we then riddle and disgorge it. So the base wine is essentially clean by the end of it. Um, so it goes through the same riddling and disgorging method as Ultramarine does. Why did I get into it? I mean, it's a really captivating style. And I think it's one that, at least in France, is thought of as maybe secondary in nature or a more fun method of making wine. And for me, I think it can be that. Um, but I it's think It's definitely a fun drinking wine. It's a fun drinking wine, but I think it's something that's sort of under... Uh, underutilized and underexplored. So that's been a big thing for me is sort of seeing what we can do and where we can take the technique. And there's not too many pet nets coming out of California. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably, you know, maybe maybe six to eight being made. Yeah, that's not, like a, that. lot, that's right. not <laughs> a lot, right? No, it's not a lot. And I think that they're all done in a little kind of varying, I don't want to say success, but varying... Uh, um, well, let's say success. Um, I, th I think for me, one of the things that I kind of want to do is I wanted to be as bubbly as champagne. So I want the I want there to be a lot of bubbles, and I want it to be dry. And how do you know that when you, I mean, you, you're essentially covering this baby up and what yeah. happens in there happens. Is it, is it a lot of math it's or a, a lot of science, so to speak? It, it is a little bit of math. Yeah, and we do, we're sort of, we're checking the yeast as uh, as it's fermenting, checking counts, checking sugars. We're measuring the pressure of the bottle, and, and we're kind of tracking it over the you know the, the the three months or four months post harvest. So yeah, it's it is a tremendous amount of work to do it right. But you know, again, for me, it's a question of not just experimentation, but also learning more about what we're doing. Let's taste some wine. What did you bring? So the first one is Monkey Jacket. What's <laughs> Monkey Jacket? Monkey Jacket. So Monkey Jacket is a was the name that I had for the winery um, when I was kind of putting it together. Um, Monkey Jacket's an old, um, like a, a proto pea coat, the old sailor's coats that had tails and double-breasted. And that was just sort of a funny, I don't know, nickname I had for the winery. And then I was like, you know, it'd be nice to actually use that name for something. So... 
So there we go. It's a mixture of uh, 50% Valdigay from a Calistoga vineyard. Um, there's Valdigay in Calistoga? Valdigay How did Calistoga. you find that? Yeah. This was a vineyard that a good buddy of mine has farmed for probably six, seven years. It just never ripped out the Valdigay. Just never ripped it out. out. They, it's very, you know, it's honestly, it's a very pretty vineyard. Bush train vines right by the water, by the river there. And uh, they're probably 60 years old. Um, maybe a little older, honestly. So they survived that phylloxera back in the kind of mid early 90s? Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see what, they might be on St. George. They're like right at the cusp of like, maybe they're on St. George. But uh, but yeah, no, they're very pretty. And uh, 35% of a red field blend, I don't know the variety at all. And where, where was that vineyard? That's in Mendocino, that's Eagle Point Vineyard, which is up above uh, Ukiah at about 2,500 feet elevation. And then the remainder is Tanah from uh, Alder Springs. So very north uh, Mendocino mm-hmm. County, very cold vineyard. And um, the Tanat is uh, exceedingly interesting. We do a, a 100% Tanat, but that, that will be bottled in November. That's, that's pretty big, huh? Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how it goes. But All right, so really pretty color, vibrant, vibrant color on this wine. Hmm. Fruity, huh? It's Fun. fruity, but... I think it's not a particularly aromatic wine for the reds that I normally make. Yeah, it's not. It's not super aromatic, is it? No. It's, uh, it's a little more, shy. Yeah, it's more textural to me. It's like um, not in a tannic way so much, but there's plenty of mouthfeel and plenty of sort of interest in the palate. I think you get a lot more aroma there, sort Good of tannin. retronasally kind of than. Mm-hmm. Knows itself. I'd like to see this wine in a few more years, huh? Mm-hmm. Although you're 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 kind of into getting your wines out there and getting them out of the bottle and into the glass. I know that. Yeah, I mean, that. to be truthful about it, I think wines like these, um, you know, we're not filtering them, we're not finding them, we're not adding a ton of sulfur to them or anything like that. They really are. I mean, I'm not saying that it couldn't age, but uh, for me, I think. It's in a drinkable place right now, and I think mm-hmm. sort of, I'm trying to not extract too much on purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to make red wines that are interesting, but table wines first. Do you know what I mean? While I'm not against the idea at all of any way of having wines that take five, six, ten years to sort of open up, I'm not, you know... I'm not predatory about Barbarossa. Like, right, 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 right. You know, for me, my, my, my thing is to... Valdigay was sort of a workman's grape, and I want to keep it that way, truthfully. You know? And how much of the monkey jacket are you producing? Um, we do a fair amount of this. This is 800 cases, probably. Oh, which is yeah. good-sized production good for Good-sized production. For, for me, it's the biggest thing we do. Um, and then the next biggest thing would be uh, probably the, the Valdigay Pet Net. Do you know what the retail price on this is? I don't know okay. exactly. Um, I charge from the winery 25 bucks. So if I were to order it off the site, it'd be twenty-five yeah, bucks. Yeah, twenty-five bucks. It's always funny. Three-tier system. It's sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's it varies by state. Yeah, exactly. And, and cruise wines aren't available over the whole country. They're available, I know, in, in Illinois, yeah. the Chicago market. Yep. I know in New York. Yep. Uh, San Francisco, obviously. Yeah, California and um, and Colorado. Colorado. Um, and then, you know, we have we're opening up some new markets this year. But it's definitely like those are my main markets now. But folks are not in the market could definitely if they're on your list or yeah, can buy definitely. some certain things through the website. Definitely, and you can you can always email us and and we'll let you know um, cruisewineco.com. Um, you know, obviously, like you said before, with ultramarine, that's a little bit of a, a tougher fish to fry. Yeah, that's that's an outlier for sure. Um, but with cruise wine, if we're not in your state, 
we want to be in your state. <laughs> I'm not trying to make wine that nobody can get. Your wine's you know? already hard enough to get. I'm trying to keep I know, it in I Chicago. Know. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's, it's been um, uh, one of the more interesting parts of this for me has been trying to make wine that I want everybody to get a hold of and then finding out that most everybody can get a hold of it for a month out of the year has been a little Yeah, that's strange. what happens. I know when I see, I, I, I saw some of the St. Laurent yeah. uh, in the fall yeah. in a shop and I bought three of them right away. Yeah, so good, I go, good, I'm good. gonna have to buy these because if I don't buy them now, I'm not gonna get them yeah. in a week. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, um, I'm glad to hear that one's now all pet net. We don't make a still sale around anymore. You don't make a still. No, sale. no. And next year we didn't really do that a lot of distribution, but next year that will be more distributed. Cool. Yeah. Let's try the Velaguer. Sure. So this is um, the 15, which you know, 15 was an interesting vintage. The yields were cut down a little bit, so I think the wine. The, the wine is ultimately a little bit more concentrated than I think in previous years. Was it a super early harvest for you in 15? It was like early. It was? it was early, yeah. I mean, part of the issue with 15 was that because yields were down a little bit um, and it was relatively warm, uh, the vines just were producing sugar to less grapes. So um, without going too much crazy, like the photosynthesis was still really high, but there was less grapes to ripen, so um, they ripened faster. Interesting. Yep. Oh, wow. Now that's pretty. More expressive, obviously. Yeah, real floral. Yeah. Or sort of always with Valdeguer, I think of like you get some type of rose element. I think a lot of rose, actually, yeah. The fruit's pretty and... It's kind of rose and watermelon core or something. I don't know exactly, but the rind, sorry. Yeah, watermelon rind, for sure. Almost a little, almost a little like Jolly Rancher, which mm-hmm. I got. I had a, I tasted a rosé while back that was like a, literally like a Jolly Rancher yeah. when you were a kid. It was so yeah, but that kind of in that neighborhood. Yeah, no, I I definitely get that. But still, kind of a little bit almost um, black pepper to back it up and yeah. give it some spine. Yeah, it's funny. There's there's a darkness to it in a, a really interesting way. Um, as the Valdegay that we made previously have aged. You know, there, there does seem to be some kind of secondary violet notes that kind of pop out. But um, for me, the acid's pretty high in this wine for 15. The tannin's a little bit uh, a little bit more pronounced than it was in previous vintages as well. So the wine the wine ends up being more serious than I think uh, maybe I want it to be. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> decanted, it's, it's good. Um, <laughs> how did you find this Valier up there? I mean, it's... So the Wilson family owns that vineyard, and I've known Terry Wilson's the owner of the vineyard. Dave Wilson's son is his son, and I've known him since probably at least 2008. And uh, this used to go into the prisoner. Uh, I had known the guys at the prisoner forever and ever, although our, our wine styles are obviously pretty different. Yeah, um, clearly. They were they were really helpful with to me and, and really sweet to me. Ended up starting making that wine in 2013. So I knew about that vineyard. I knew actually I knew about the one in Calistoga too, probably maybe not in 2008, but in that neighborhood of time. And I wanted both of them. Um, I, and honestly, in retrospect, I don't know exactly why. I think it's because when I had tasted that wine, there's just a there's an, a lightness to it, but also a seriousness to it that I'm to the variety I'm saying that I'm I'm really attracted to. Yeah, I see that. And I think some people, you know, some people would talk about like Cru Beaujolais and stuff. And I don't really like talking about that stuff because I think it it takes away from what from both wines. But I think for me, there's an element of 
it tastes very Californian to me. I don't know exactly how to describe that, but there's a there's sunshine in it without being too much sunshine. You know? Yeah, it's 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 fruity without being extracted. That's right. That's right. And I think that like I find stuff like that extremely interesting. Playing in that space is something that I and like ultramarine too. I mean, you know, putting it back to that. Uh, like, the fruit in ultramarine is clearly Californian. Yeah, exactly. And but think, it's still serious enough and exactly for me. I think I'm not apologetic about being Californian, far from it. And I think that I like the idea of sort of what's terroir if we can't be talk about sunshine. I I was at a uh, tasting a year ago, an ultramarine tasting here in Chicago Uh a year ago, and there was a sommelier and he tasted it, and it's exactly the word he used. He said, this is unapologetically Californian. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we've been from the beginning. And I think, you know, if you're going to find a similarity between all my wines, I want them to be recognizable as Californian. I think that's really important. And I think that that doesn't mean that I want them to be 18% alcohol and over-extracted. But it also doesn't mean that I'm going to try to force them to fit into a Burgundian hole that they don't want to fit in. And I'm not throwing shade on anybody. I'm just saying, like, for me, I think that I think all of these sort of talks of style are fine, and, and that's for other people to have. But for me, I think I want vineyards that express themselves as what they are, if that makes any kind of sense at all. Uh, but I think there's also a lot of you going into your winemaking as yeah, well. No, I, I mean, you know, true. you're you're making your wines that are are. You want to, like I said, you want to make the wine so I could pop that bottle tonight after I get home, and I don't have to put it down for five years or eight years. It's true, and I I think that, like, sort of as I develop, I mean, I've been in the industry. This will be my eleventh harvest or twelfth harvest. I honestly don't remember, but um, as I develop in this industry, I find that that's the pull that I'm. That's the fork that I'm following in the road. I guess is that I find that. the overly aspirational winemaking is something that is very interesting to me, but it's not something that I am interested in doing now. How about that? And um, again, that's not something that I'm against. It's just for me, I would much rather have you have a wine that you buy a case of and you don't feel bad about drinking it. And No one could get a case of your wine, Michael. Ah, <laughs> uh, and then if you find down the line, you have, you find a bottle in the back of your cellar and you enjoy that three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, and you can send me an email saying, hey, it held up really well. That's great. But I'd rather that be the last bottle that you have. Now, now, that, you know be, I mean? now that being said, I'm holding on to some of my ultramarine good, to good. see how that develops. I, I mean, think drink the 2010. I think the 11 is I've got, age-worthy. The I've, 10, I think... I don't think we knew exactly what we were doing in the level that I would recommend aging. I've got two of the rosés and one of the Blanc Blanc from the 10 left, and I've got all my 11s left, so it's three and three. Yeah, Yeah, drink the... Drink the tens up. I think they're. I think the elevens are going to age remarkably well. Um, spe- well, specifically the Mont de Blanc. And why? Um, I just think we're learning more, and we think we're better at making the wine. I know that sounds crazy to say. And ten was the first vintage, right? Ten was the first vintage we sold commercially. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I just think that there's elements of oxidation in the ten that I really like, but. I think the way that the 10 is tasting now, I don't think it's going to taste much better. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's diminishing returns. As yeah, we're the 11. we've reached the top of the bell. I think so. I think so. I mean, I don't know, you know. But I think the 11. I'm hanging on to that Blanc de Blanc for a few do years. It, just do to, it. That's fine. Because what I want to do is put a five year vertical together right. at some point and right, go, okay, right, let's right. see what's going on. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing for sure. And I, I think uh, with the 11, 
the 11, I'm confident of that. I, I'm confident the Blanc de Blanc will age really well. The the 10, I, I guess that's maybe that's what I'm saying. The 10, I think, tastes great now. I'm slightly less confident in that. Which is uh, funny when you think about vintages, you know, especially just sort of an overall perception of the vintage. Right. People sort of poo-pooed on the 11 and like... Well, right, but the reason why people poo-pooed on the 11 was because of Cabernet. Right. And to a lesser extent, Pinot Noir. Our, our grapes were off the vine before we had any of those major rains. Um, I mean, I don't know if we've said this to each other before, but like 10 and 11 were almost indistinguishable from a climactic point of view at Charlie Heinz's vineyard for us. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think it's funny when people talk about vintages. Look, I get it. In Champagne, Champagne is 100,000 acres of completely similar vineyards, right? And I, that's, that's not... That's not saying it is what it is. It is what it is. But, you know, from Petaluma to Occidental, that's where the winery is and that's where the vineyard is. That's only maybe 30 miles. But it could be raining in Occidental and it could be dumping four, five, six inches of rain in 48 hours. And I would see half an inch. Right. Do you know what I mean? So you couldn't have more different areas. And I think when we talk about vintages in California, uh, be careful with that. Do you know what I mean? Because sure. I, think, I think it's uh, there is variability um, depending on the, the situation. Well, without it, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, ten and eleven for Ultramarine is very similar. That's my point. Um, and I think the differences in those two wines, I think, are primarily based on winemaking. Does some Syrah come out of Charlie Heinz Vineyard as well? Yeah, exactly. So we did that. That Syrah. Um, I've been buying it since 2013. Yeah, I love that. Syrah. I love that Syrah. <laughs> I, I love know. that Syrah. Yeah. I, I think, think you, you said it out of egg. You maybe. did, yeah, out of the egg and, and out of barrel. Yeah. We taste them side by yeah. side uh, when I visited you in November. Uh, but at the time you said it's the best Syrah vineyard you've worked. I think it is. I mean, I think it is because it, it's the nature of, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Charlie ultimately does with that vineyard in terms of what he wants to do with it. But it's probably two acres, maybe two and a half acres. It's a south-facing slope. And it's... A, and this is a little too inside baseball, but I'd say this. Sometimes there's been a trend in Sonoma County, in Western Sonoma, to like take really extreme climates and try to grow Syrah there, which I'm 100% in favor of. It's great. Do whatever you want. But I think there's an element of sort of fetishism, fetishism of that where the vines no longer can no longer grow on some level and have a hard time growing. Charlie is right at the cusp of that. Like Those vines grow great. They're vigorous. They're healthy, um, and they can set fruit. They can ripen fruit. It's just that they ripen fruit in November. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the part where that's a special. That's a special spot. It's a special vineyard. I'm not sure which wine it was. We tasted a still wine for the Blanc de Noir, who's a Pinot Noir, and you talked uh-huh. about how it was one of the best expressions of Pinot Noir out of the vineyard. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, maybe what I was speaking to more is that I think that the the Blanc de Noir is a better expression of Pinot Noir. No, I think what I was probably saying is that the reason why I like making Blanc de Noir from that vineyard is that it tastes like Pinot Noir when it's done as a Blanc de Noir. And that's something that I find really interesting. It's like, I don't like Blanc de Noirs that I can't recognize. Yeah, like it's like, okay, there's a little weight here, but it still kind of tastes like... It's basically, it's lower acid Chardonnay-based wine. Again, we're... We're a very casual conversation. We're going to a lot of inside baseball, but for me, I There's like... There's some wine geeks that listen to this, yeah, so... Yeah, good, good, good. I think, I mean, for me, I like the Blanc de Noirs that have berry elements and fruity elements 
um, that are obvious in the in the base one. And I think I think Charlie's Vineyard shows that, irrespective of kind of how you're doing the pressing and how you're doing the cutting and things like that. And then finally, what we're going to taste is the Ultramarine uh, 2011 Rosé. Boy, that's pretty. I see what you mean about it being Pinot Noir. Yeah. It smells like Pinot Noir light, of course, but... Well, it reminds me of, and, and I think there's a good and a bad to this, but it reminds me of old California Pinot Noir. And by that, I mean kind of it's very slightly green, kind of in a minty way, right? Mm-hmm. Minty, almost like, um, almost borderline menthol cigarettes. Not, I don't mean the tobacco-y part, but that kind of like, not menthol, not mint, but that kind of like herbaly kind of thing in there. Mm-hmm. Lots of strawberry, for sure. Yeah. Um, and of course, the, the yeasty, biscuity notes are there, for sure. This is still pretty young, too, for an 11, it I think, is, huh? It is young. I mean, that's the thing. That's the magic of Tourage, right? Is it's a little bit of a time capsule for, for aging. This is delicious. Mm. I just want to drink this. Good. Get it. <laughs> Do it. Wow. It's, it's really cool seeing these wines and talking to you about your ideas behind them. Uh, you're, you're breaking the mold. You know, you're doing things that, you know, you know, what does everyone say about Syrah? You know, it's a tough sell. Right. And you're, you're, you're finding this cool Syrah and you're selling and you're Valdigay and Saint Laurent and uh, grower style sparkling right. wines um, that... It almost be crazy to make these things in California <laughs> and try and sell them, but wow. you're doing it and you're uh, selling them every day or selling them as fast as you could get them out on the market. Do what I can. Um, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks thank for you so much for talking with I me. Appreciate, I appreciate the hell out of it, and I, uh, it's great to it's great to taste with you and you're enthused about the wines, and it, it yeah. makes me very happy to. Uh, kind of, I'm kind of a fanboy nerd, <laughs> yeah, no, so I love it. I admittedly, love it. Thank um, you so much. but uh, go out and uh, try and find some ultramarine, and well, you have to be on the list for ultramarine, but don't, definitely go out and try and uh, get some uh, Cruise Wine Company wines. They're they're absolutely delicious and stuff to be drinking right now. Thanks, cool. Michael Cruz. Thank you very much. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpourpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart, and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart, music by Kevin McLeod. 